book of Acts, chapter 17 and verse 11, the Bible says, These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scripture to find out whether those things were so. You know, I find it interesting that the commentary here says that the Bereans, they were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. And that may give us the impression that the Thessalonicans were not fair-minded. Well, on the contrary. Paul told them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, We thank God because when we came to you, you received the word that we said to you, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectively works in those of you who believe. But there was something different about these Bereans in the way that they received what was preached to them. They were fair-minded. The King James says noble. You know, these people, when they were faced with doctrinal issues, they did two things. Number one, they opened their mind and they got it ready. But secondly, they opened their Bible. You know, if a person has an open mind and a closed Bible, most likely they're going to be gullible. They'll believe whatever you tell them, as long as their mind's open. But you know, people can have a closed mind and an open Bible, and then they'll be prejudiced, and they're really not going to receive what the Word is trying to give to them. And I want to ask you this morning, as we look through our study, that you would be fair-minded with God's Word. As we look at these things that we're about to study be fair-minded, and you'll be blessed by our study this morning. We're going to talk about rightly dividing the word of truth. From 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, where the Bible says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. My stepmother is a teacher and she was extremely frustrated with me all through high school because she really didn't feel like the grades that I was getting were a true reflection of my potential. And I know the exact reason for that is because I hated to study. I was lazy. I didn't want to put forth the effort of opening these books that I really didn't care about because I just didn't like it. I think she finds it rather ironic that I chose a profession where I study all the time. We understand what study means, don't we? Study's different from reading. You know, you can read, but that's not studying. Sometimes you see people skim through a book. That's not studying. Paul said, study. The New King James renders this passage, be diligent, put forth effort. Why? Well, he says, oh, you'll be approved of God as a servant, as a workman. But secondly, he says so that you'll be able to rightly divide the word of truth. Friends, I want you to know if there is a right way to divide the word of truth, then there's a wrong way. This word, and I say word because these two English words that are translated rightly and dividing come from one Greek word, and that Greek word means to dissect. Now, I want you to think about this. I remember when I was in science class, our teacher came in, and she brought in this five-gallon bucket and opened it up, and it smelled like death. I mean, it was terrible. And she said, everybody get a frog. So we did. 
And then we had these little, I don't know, look like a cake pan with some little black film in it. And we put it in there. And she said, all right, the first thing I want you to do is take your scalpel. Yes, they let us play with very sharp, razor-sharp knives. And she said, I want you to make a straight cut, a symmetrical dividing line down the middle of this frog. You know what the word means, rightly dividing? It means to dissect, to make a straight cut. Why did we cut open that frog? I mean, really, was was our science teacher morbid? Did she have some fixation on us dismantling a dead animal? No. Because, see, she didn't just tell us to make a straight cut. We had all these little pins with numbers attached to them, and we had a sheet of paper. And on that sheet of paper were various parts of this animal. And as we looked over here and we identified what was inside of this frog, we began to better understand how this animal worked, how it operated. We studied it. How do you treat God's word? Do you open it up? You know, it wouldn't have done us any good to cut open that frog if we are just going to sit there and stare at it. (laughs) Not try to understand it, not try to sort through it. See, God has given us a way so that we can open up his word and we can look at it and we can understand it. And I sympathize with anyone who has trouble understanding God's word. I sympathize with you. I've been there and sometimes when I'm in the minor prophets, I'm still there. There are some things, as Peter wrote, that that, uh, said that Paul wrote that were hard to be understood. And he said sometimes men will twist those scriptures. Well, here's my question Why is there so many different beliefs? I mean, we've got one book, right? One book. There's a concept that we're going to talk about today called hermeneutics. And no, that's not a biblical term, but it is a biblical concept. It actually comes from Greek mythology. You probably heard of Hermes. He was supposedly, in mythology, the messenger of the gods. And that's where this phrase or term comes from. And maybe you've never heard this word, but you'll understand it. It means the art of finding the meaning of an author's words and phrases and of explaining it to others. In other words, it is the method that we use when we open up a book and examine it and then teach it to others. It's the method we use to interpret the Bible. There's a lot of methods that are being used today. And you know, whose method's right? Is it the Church of Christ's method? Is it the Baptist church's method? Is it the Methodist church's? Whose method is correct? Well, I'll just tell you, it's God's. That's who it is. It's really not attached to a name. It's attached to God and how God operates and how God has told us to rightly divide his word. God has given us a method for understanding his word. You know, there's sort of two really extreme ways of looking at Bible. Some people would say, well, the Bible is 100% literal. And, you know, when you say that or hear that, that sounds really good on the surface. Oh, yeah, the Bible, it's, it's 100% literal all the time. Then you go and you read things like where Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dream, where these, apparently, if the Bible's 100% literal, cannibalistic skinny ears of corn ate their fellow fat corn, and you go, well... Maybe it's not 
always 100% literal. No, it means what it says, but it, you can't just say, well, it always means what it says. There's literary devices in Scripture. And some people would say, well, if, if, if the Bible's not always 100% literal, then, then you just can't know that it's true at all. Would someone say that about other works of writing? Well, if they use figurative language or analogies or, you know, anything like that, well, obviously that can't be true. I wouldn't say the truth is somewhere in the middle of this, but I will say this. We need to understand how God's Word works. And we're going to talk, Lord willing, this afternoon about some of these different literary devices. But before we do that... I want to look at the question, how and who will understand God's word? This was a question that was brought up in the book of Isaiah chapter 28. The Bible says, whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to have understanding? Well, that's what we want to know. Who's going to understand God's word? Then he answers the question. He says, them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. Now, you think about a baby. There's a certain time in that baby's development that it is weaned from its mother, right? Okay, let's look at another passage of Scripture that kind of voices this same truth. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 13. He says, For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, that is, those that are mature. And how did they become mature? Well, he tells us. Even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now the best way for me to explain this is I'm a redneck. I'll just go ahead and admit that. I'm, I won't say I'm proud of it, but I'm, I'm not going to hide that. We like to hunt. And when Van was about five or six years old, we were homeschooling him. And so October... <laughs> I was able to go out early in the morning and go hunt. Well, he wanted to go with me, and I thought, well, this would be a good time to teach him how to hunt. And we were bow hunting, and bow hunting is different from rifle hunting. You can't just sit out there two or 300 yards and wait for something to walk across the pasture and shoot it. There's certain things you have to know when you're bow hunting. Number one is you have to be quiet. That is very hard for a hyper six-year-old. But he learned that. You know what else he learned? Not every noise is a giant buck. <laughs> a twig snaps. Dad, was that a buck? No, son. That was a sparrow. <laughs> but you know, after about four or five times being out in the blind, he stopped asking those questions. You know why? Because of reason of use, because of experience that he had, his senses became exercised when he heard a certain noise he didn't get all excited because he said, you know what, that's not a deer. See, that's how your senses worked. Your senses, as you become more familiar with something, they start to recognize things a little bit easier. And that's what he's talking about here. People who are going to be able to handle the strong meat of God's word are people whose senses are exercised. You know what, that's good parenting. That's not going to work. For one thing, the child probably doesn't have enough teeth. Maybe it does have enough teeth and it goes down into the stomach and it can't digest it. Maybe it causes some other problems like a blockage or maybe even result in death. Strong meat doesn't belong to babies, but I'm going to tell you something else. What's more sad, can you imagine going into a steakhouse 
and sing this. You know, a woman said one time to a preacher, she said, you were a little hard on us babes this morning. And he said, how long have you been a Christian? She said, 35 years. 35 years. She was a babe. You know, there came a time in life when my parents quit tying my shoes. And they quit feeding me. And they quit buying my clothes because they expected me to grow up. And listen, friends, God expects us to grow up spiritually. He doesn't expect us to only be able to understand what we understood when we became a Christian. He wants us through study and through usage of his word to gain maturity so that we can understand his precepts. It takes these three things to have knowledge and understanding. And I want to ask you this morning, where are you in your maturity in handling God's word. Another thing that Isaiah would say in this idea of who will understand, he says, for precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. What does he mean? You know, the Bible doesn't have an index where you go in the back and you look up the word faith and you go to one or two pages and every single truth about faith is right there on that page. The Bible is built and given to us in layers and you can find precepts here and you can find precepts there. Precepts build upon precepts. These truths harmonize, they work together. Let me give you an example of how this works. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 this was a prophecy that God gave, speaking to the serpent, and he said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, do you suppose when Adam and Eve heard God say this to the serpent that they said, you know what? God just gave us a prophecy concerning the Messiah and how he would stomp the head of Satan. Well, they didn't get that. I'm sure this was very ambiguous to them and this idea of her seed. You know, that's kind of interesting that he says the seed of a woman. But it's not so interesting. It's not so peculiar when we begin to put these layers together. Galatians 4 and 4, Paul points to this when he says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman. Well, that's a peculiar statement. Isn't everybody that's born into the world made of a woman? Aren't they? Well, actually, if you look at biblical history and genealogies, when someone was identified, a son was identified, they were identified with their father, not their mother. And there was something different about this birth. Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and call, y'all shall call his name Emmanuel. So here's another layer of truth. Why does he say born of a woman? Because Jesus would not have a physical fleshly father. He'd be born of a virgin. And then we can add another layer of truth. And we can know exactly who this woman was. It was Mary. Well, how in the world can a virgin conceive? Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus was born of the Holy Ghost. He was the Son of God. And layer after layer after layer... 
And you begin to see a greater picture of truth. Friends, that's how the Bible works. Precept must be upon precept. Line upon line, here a little and there a little. And someone says, that sounds like a lot of work. That's why he said, study. Study. It takes effort. Paul told Timothy that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures. Timothy, apparently from a very young age, began to be taught by his mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice. They taught him the Bible, and he knew the Bible. But you know what else he told Timothy? He said, till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. This phrase, or two words, give attendance, means to hold the mind toward. That is, pay attention to. Give attendance to reading. Now, from time to time, I'll be at the house, and my wife will say, I'm going to go to the store. I'm going to go down and, and get the mail, or Whatever, and she says, Ian, watch Olivia. Olivia's three. And then she gets back home, she says, where's Olivia? I say, well, she's right. I'm sure she's in the house. (laughs) You know what she meant? Till I come, give attendance to Olivia. You know why? Because if Olivia escapes, she might do something crazy like paint her teeth with nail polish. I wasn't home for that one, so can't blame me. But she can get all kinds of trouble. Why? So you got to focus on her. you got to hold your mind toward her. That's the idea. Focus on reading God's Word. Focus on it. What are we focused on from day to day? You know, I used to say it, and I hear it all the time. Well, I just don't have time to study God's Word. I don't have time. Really? I know people that tell me they don't have time to study God's Word, and then they post on Facebook, I've been watching this marathon on Netflix for 12 straight hours. We make time for what we think is important, don't we? We make time. What are we focused on? You know, a lot of people just think that God has made his word too complicated. It's just too complicated. And the skeptic will say, well, you know what? If you really have a God, if there's really a God, and he was trying to communicate a message to his creation, he wouldn't have made it so difficult. It would be easy. In other words, God's a bad communicator. You know what? I don't hear the skeptic saying, well, you know what? Calculus and physics are so complicated, they're probably not even true. I mean, if they were really true, then then we wouldn't have to study it. They don't say that about chemistry. They don't say that about advanced mathematics. And you know why? Because those things are complicated. And people spend billions of dollars and countless hours trying to understand these complicated processes. But you know what, friends? The God that created physics and chemistry and mathematics is more complicated than the creation. We think God ought to be simple. Our God who created an expansive and vast and complicated universe with natural laws of gravity and centrifugal force that work together as a system, we think that God ought to be simple. 
And he's not. But I'll tell you this, he's not a bad communicator either. You know, I think what the truth is, is it really bothers us. It really bothers us that there's some things we can't understand. God said, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are your ways higher than my ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know what, I'm just going to admit something, and she's not here, so if I want her to know this, I'll tell her. Um, my wife is smarter than me. Now she's showed me there are tests that prove that her IQ is higher than mine, and sometimes my behavior also proves that she's smarter than me. <laughs> But she's not twice as smart as me. Even though she might think she is. She's not. How much smarter is God than me? As the heavens are higher than the earth. Well, how high is that? Well, I'm told that there are some systems and some uh, what we might call celestial bodies that are... 18 billion light years away. Maybe that makes no sense to you. That's a long ways. That's the distance it would take light, 18 billion years to travel to a heavenly body. Well, let's just think about something relatively close that we can maybe understand. Our sun. Our sun is said to be 92,960,000 miles away from the earth. That's relatively close in the scope of the universe, isn't it? How much smarter is God than us? As high as the heavens are above the earth. And we think we ought to just understand everything that God has to say the first time we look at it. And then there's those things that God hasn't told us that we really get concerned about. And I quit falling for this when I was about eight or nine years old. Because every time I'd go and I'd ask my grandfather a question, you know. One of those questions that wasn't in the Bible but I really wanted to know. And he'd say, I know where the answer to that is. And he'd turn me over and we'd read Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of his law. I finally memorized Deuteronomy 29 and 29. But it bothers us. We say, well, why didn't God tell us that? You know, God made everything from his word. Well, how did he do that? Explain to me exactly how he did that. I probably wouldn't understand it if he told me. But here's an idea. Why are we worried so much about what God hasn't told us when we still don't understand everything that he has told us? Maybe we should be focused on the things that belong to us, the things that God has given to us. As we begin to close the first section of our study today, I want to ask the question, does God's will change? And I think most people would look at that and say, no, that's obvious, God's will doesn't change. Well, many people believe that the Bible can be treated like a living document. When I say living document, I don't mean the Word of God is quick or living. What I'm saying is that it can be amended Maybe you've heard people say, well, that's an archaic and ancient book. They can't know anything about our society today and our culture today. Like, God can't understand that. And so men have taken the liberty to change God's word. And sometimes even uh, going to a great effort to make sure that other people understand why they've done it. 
Now, I'm not being critical and I'm not uh, trying to insult. I'm just giving you an example of how men have done this. Maybe you're familiar with what's called the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Now, the Catechism, it is a book of doctrines that are for the Catholic Church. And in the front of this book, there's a symbol or a phrase, ex cathedra. Ex cathedra means that the words in this book were spoken with authority. What authority? I want you to look right here. Defined by the Pope as infallibly true to be accepted by all Catholics. Ex cathedra. You know what they're saying? This is the will of God. Well, how do you know it's the will of God? Because the Pope spoke it, so it's infallibly true. You can't argue with it. Friends, do we have to have a symbol in the front of this book that says ex cathedra? No, we don't. You know why? Because we know that God gave it to us. Well, why put a symbol ex cathedra here? Because if you'll look through a catechism sometimes, you'll find out there's certain things in there that they don't line up with this. What if someone questions those things? Why does this book say this and the Bible says this? Well, don't worry about that. It's ex cathedra. This is given by the Pope. Therefore, it's infallibly true. Sometimes I've had folks come to my door and they've presented me with what they said was another testament of Jesus Christ. I want to ask you a question. Is this another testament of Jesus Christ? Is it? Well, how do you know? How do you know it's not? When they came to my house, they said, you take this, you put your hand on this book, and you pray to God, and you ask if it's real. I said, I already know it's not real. I already know it's not another testament of Jesus Christ. They said, well, how do you know that? John chapter 16, verse 13. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. This was what Jesus said to his disciples before he went to the cross. My friends, I told you the night I'm simple, so I'm not trying to be elementary, but I just want to ask a very simple question. How much truth do you have if you have all truth? If you've got all truth, how much is left? There's not any left. You've got it all, don't you? Did Jesus fail? Did the Holy Spirit fail these men? That's what we're told. Because when someone treats God's word as a living document and said, well, there's other things God wanted us to know that he didn't give us, we have to say that Jesus and the Spirit and God himself failed in this mission. I believe that he gave us all truth. Well, Ian, what about those things in the future? Well, he said, I'm gonna sh- he's going to show you things to come, too. God is not oblivious to the future, friends. In Jude, verse 3, he said, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning the common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly. Now listen, for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. See, we're told, well, you know what, God sent another prophet. No, he didn't. 
He didn't send another prophet to make another book, to write down another testament. Ephesians 4 says what? There is one faith. That's one system of belief that God has given to his people. There's one faith. Once delivered for all. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, According as his divine power hath given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. You know, if you go to the bookstore, there's most likely going to be a section that will say something like Christian living. Tons of books. Just book after book after book that man's written. You know what? Sometimes those books are very helpful because you can go in there and, and someone will explain God's word. And they do that in a way that's kind of it opens your eyes. You say, well, you know what? I never looked at that passage that way. But then there's these other books and there's not very much Bible in them or there might be some Bible, but there's really not any explanation. And I just want to ask a question is God insufficient in giving us a guide for life? Okay, I'm going to be redundant. I'm going to say it again. How many things do you have that pertain to life and godliness if God has given you all of them? So whatever matters in life, God's told us, hasn't he? He's told us how to live. He's told us how to be godly. He's called us to glory and virtue, and he's told us how to attain to it. God's not a bad communicator. God's given us everything we need. And friends, we can't go change it just because we don't agree with it. Lord willing, this afternoon, we're going to look at the question, why are there so many divisions in Christianity? And I'll just go ahead and reveal to you that it surrounds this subject that we began and introduced this morning. It all comes back to our approach with the Word of God. This morning, we've reserved this time in our service to offer the invitation of Jesus Christ. It's not the invitation of this congregation. It's not my invitation. It's the invitation of Jesus. That if you have a need from the great physician this morning... We just simply want to help you to take that need to him, to the foot of the cross. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. If you would like to become a child of God this morning and you understand that, we want to help you with that. Maybe you're here today and you are a Christian. And you're having difficulty in life. Well, God has blessed us with one another. To encourage one another, to exhort one another. And he's also blessed us... Because we can go to him in prayer and he will give us strength. Or maybe he will give us forgiveness. If that's what you need, God is faithful to forgive us. If you have a need this morning, come forward and have a seat and we will help you as we stand and sing.